Hello. This is episode 49 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. Many people erroneously think that they only have one chance to succeed at their life's work, and that if they miss that chance, they're doomed to failure. In fact, people get many chances to succeed at their life's work. That was a quote by legendary football coach, the man who changed the game of American football, San Francisco's own Bill Walsh. Now, from the title of this podcast, uh, you're seeing a bit of tongue-in-cheek terminology, um, a bit of sarcasm, but it's a podcast about the positives And the true lessons I've learned while being someone who played team sports a long time ago and someone who used to regularly watch team sports and now has seen the error of watching team sports, especially in today's day and age. Perhaps in the 80s and the 90s, there was a bit more to it. Um, Maybe even further back than that. There's, there was social capital actually built through sports. Um, there's some examples of this. Uh, social capital, again, as our esteemed guest from episode 48, totally not an Acreon, would tell you about. They called baseball America's pastime for a reason. It, it's a sport that I think to this day actually has actually captured the spirit of Americana. It's something that's truly synonymous with the country. American football, on the other hand, while it's been adopted as a number one game in America, number one sport in America, rather, it lacks a zeitgeist and it lacks a truth that baseball has. I've seen similar dynamics um, with, you know, true football or football. across Latin American countries, of course, European countries, specifically Brazil, uh, Argentina, uh, Mexico, um, and England, for that matter, to be honest. Uh, watching the FA Cup third round in, in true football, association football, uh, it, has, it captures an essence of England that I adore. We're going to be discussing the great coaches and the great athletes that have at least stuck out to me personally uh, across four sports, football, American football, baseball, and basketball. I'm sure there's some other examples from other sports, um, sports I'm a bit less familiar with, uh, hockey, rugby, cricket. I know these are sports that are very popular around the world, but they're they're sports that I have not followed closely or personally. We're going to be discussing the great minds of coaches. We're going to be discussing the great personal philosophies and methods for overcoming struggles and adversity by some of the great athletes. The coaches being Bill Walsh, Vince Lombardi, Phil Jackson, and Johan Cruyff. Bill Walsh, once again, is the storied coach of the San Francisco 49ers. Rise to prominence in changing the game of football. Vince Lombardi, um, another American football coach who saw the Green Bay Packers return to prominence 
um, through his pristine level of discipline in terms of his coaching style. Uh, Phil Jackson, the man who is the coach of Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls and Kobe Bryant's Los Angeles Lakers, the most successful coach in the history of basketball. And Johan Cruyff, a legendary Dutch football player, as in football, who also created the style of football that completely changed the game to this day through FC Barcelona, the tiki-taka style of football. In terms of the great players from baseball, we have one player, uh, one lesson in particular, the phenom pitcher that unfortunately never realized his full potential, the great Dwight Gooden. For football, we have Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, and Deion Sanders of the great 49ers. You're seeing a bit of San Francisco bias here for the obvious reasons, as I am from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, Kurt Warner, Roger Staubach for two other quarterbacks. Uh, and ex examples from football, as in, again, soccer for the Americans, uh, Diego Maradona. And from basketball, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Dennis Rodman, and the we sitting here talking about practice, Allen Iverson. Now, as one more aside to the Bay Area, uh, a sportscaster by the name of Colin Coward back in 2016 um, discussed how the Bay Area's level of innovation uh, has changed three sports in the way they're played. The San Francisco 49ers with football, with Bill Walsh and the West Coast offense. Billy Bean being the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, changing the game of baseball by the money ball tactics. And the Golden State Warriors changing the game of basketball by being a completely, uh, not completely, but almost primarily um, three-point shooting offense. He joked, and he wasn't really joking, they have a higher concentration of strategy and innovation when it comes to thought. Silicon Valley is here, and it reflects in our sports teams. I can't say that's something I'm proud of anymore with my deep criticisms of Silicon Valley, but it is a fascinating dynamic. So let's dive straight into the minds of the coaches. Let's begin with, let's begin in chronological order for their rise to prominence and begin with the great Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi is a man, an Italian-American man from New York City, who grew up in New York City at a time where Immigrants and descendants of immigrants from places like Italy, Ireland, parts of Eastern Europe were discriminated against by the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant or WASP majority, at least in the context of the Northeast, less so when you reach the Midwest, especially the South, as Southern white Protestants had a completely different dynamic uh, with other people in this country ever since the end of the American Civil War in 1865. Uh, as well as the West, the West being this wide open space, uh, and still to this day. Vince Lombardi uh, grew up in, in this sort of discrimination against Italians. Um, if you were Southern or Eastern European and an immigrant, you weren't fully seen as white and therefore seen as lesser. It's a very fascinating dynamic in the United States. Um, he grew up a football enthusiast. He played football at Fordham University in the Bronx. And then he got into coaching, and he became a coach for the New York Giants football franchise. He was the offensive coordinator 
for the New York Giants when they played the greatest game ever played in 1958, the NFL championship between the New York Giants and the Baltimore Colts. The Baltimore Colts led by the great Johnny Unitas defeating the New York Giants in overtime. Still, the highlight of the New York Giants' game, and I should add that this is the game that actually propelled um, the giant, the, the propelled American football to be the number one sport in America, despite baseball to this day more properly and better capturing the spirit of timeless Americana. The highlights in the greatest game ever played for the Giants, though, were uh, the offense. Um, Taken aside very, very quickly that the defensive coordinator for the New York Giants at this time was a man named Tom Landry, a man who went to go on and coach the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, for all you international listeners, I know I'm throwing a lot of American um, knowledge, but please do bear with me because, once again, this isn't about the sports, but this is about the lessons from sports. Um, Vince Lombardi was really, by his merits, uh, supposed to be the next head coach of the New York Giants, but due to being Italian-American, uh, he was not given the job. Instead, the one job that he could acquire was the head coaching job at the Green Bay Packers. Now, Green Bay is a small town in northern Wisconsin, Wisconsin being a state in the northern part of the United States. Very cold. And it's actually the last remaining American football franchise that is in a small town as opposed to a big city. When American football first began, the National Football League uh, was founded in 1920, I believe. Um, these teams were put together by small groups of men who enjoyed playing the game of football. They were in small towns, places like Staley and uh, Decatur and, uh, and Green Bay. And they all eventually moved to big cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, and New York. But Green Bay, the Green Bay Packers had seen an immense amount of success um, in Green Bay, and therefore they were able to really set their roots in the town of Green Bay. The team, by the way, the name comes from the men who worked in a meatpacking company uh, in that part of Wisconsin. So once again, the Green Bay Packers. This time of prominence that kept them in the town of Green Bay was led by a man named Curly Lambeau. Um, and to this day, the name of the stadium is Lambeau Field. But unfortunately, the Green Bay Packers uh, hadn't seen success for, for decades at this point when Vince Lombardi arrived and took over a team that, quite frankly, was in shambles. This is where it comes to play that Vince Lombardi was somewhat of an unspoken minimalist. He believed in as, many, as few moving parts as possible, and the parts that were used to be as precise and as efficient and as tough and as mentally strong as possible, both in terms of the tactics he deployed as a coach when strategizing plays for American football, as well as the personnel that he managed and the players that he managed and the personalities that he managed. He was a drill sergeant type, a disciplinarian. He chose plays that were simple to execute and highly effective, um, but were drilled by men of the utmost mental toughness. There is a play that's very famous from Vince Lombardi called the Power Sweep. It's a very simple play. It's a yard gainer. They average eight yards per carry on this play. And for those of you who are not familiar with football, 
Uh, eight yards of play is phenomenal movement to gain field position to score a touchdown. A touchdown, uh, I'm prefacing once again for all our international listeners. American football is played on a field of 100 yards. Um, it's a somewhat of a turn-based game where uh, one side sends out their offense and one side sends out their defense, and the, the offense has... Um, four chances to advance the football 10 yards before getting a new set of four chances or downs. Um, this is done through either running the football by handing it to a man called a, a fullback or a tailback, a running back uh, is a general term, to advance the football. And, or either for the quarterback, the man who calls, who calls the plays on the field as prescribed by the coach, uh, throws the football forward, the forward pass. Um, the power sweep... Uh, you have if they essentially advance 100 yards to the opposite team's uh, end zone, and then that's a score, somewhat similar to rugby. Um, this yard gainer, the power sweep, he described it as the one play that is the marquee play of every football team. It's the play that the other team knows it's coming, and they can't do anything about it. Um, this was wildly successful. The Green Bay Packers won five NFL championships in the decade of the 1960s, uh, including three in a row towards the tail end of the decade. Uh, Vince Lombardi was also a man who had his personal life very much in order. He was a devoted father when he wasn't on the field. He was famously uh, noted for being obsessive with practice. Uh, Monday and Tuesday. He said if you got those days right, if, um, then Wednesday and Thursday would be more strategy-based days. Friday would be a bit more scripted. Saturday would be some rest for preparation. And Sunday, when the games are played, it was showtime. There's, there's a lot of famous footage of Vince Lombardi in his sort of basement uh, bar where he throws soirees with players and coaches and wives afterwards. And You'd see, you know, celebratory smiles on his face, and then as the night went on, you saw this dread, not necessarily this dread, but this aching feeling, like the preparation for the next week in the Monday and Tuesday needed to be, well, needed to be thought of, and it needed to be obsessed over. Vince Lombardi, uh, his personal life, he was a devoted father on those not-so-Mondays and Tuesdays, days of the week. He was a devoted husband, and he was a devoted Catholic. He was in church every single day. The discipline of his life was therefore reflected onto his team. The discipline of his family, the discipline in which he engaged with his family, was carried over into the way that he managed players. He managed every individual with honesty, tough love, and once again, discipline. Vince Lombardi retired from the head coaching position of the Green Bay Packers uh, in the late 60s. He spent a year in retirement, and then he came out of retirement to coach the Washington Redskins up until 1970 when he very untimely died. It's a testament the way Vince Lombardi coached to, if you're going to manage people, if you're going to manage yourself, if you're going to pick a certain set of entities, whether they're thoughts or tactics or procedures or people, that you are going to manage them all to the best of their possible ability. And then eventually the 
they all become together greater than the actual mathematical sum of their parts. Moving on in chronological order to the man who changed the same game. A man by the name, once again, of Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh was a mind ahead of his time. He was an offensive genius when it came to scripting plays. He was the offensive coordinator for the Cincinnati Bengals in 1967. Once again, another American football team. This team was uh, head coached by a man named Paul Brown. Paul Brown, uh, before Vince Lombardi, was really um, what many uh, great American football coaches today, including uh, today's sort of genius, Bill Belichick, the head coach of the New, York, the New England Patriots. Um, I'm sure even the international listeners will have heard the name Tom Brady. He was Tom Brady's coach uh, for 20 years with the New England Patriots, leading them to six championships. Although there's some cheating involved there, but we won't get into that. Um, Tom Brady, uh, sorry, and uh, Bill Belichick has called Paul Brown the greatest coach of all time because he was the first person to really change the game in terms of having all their ducks in a row when it came to training and conditioning and scheduling and diet and strategies. He took it to the next level when it came to preparation. He is the person who had his framework that, quite frankly, even Vince Lombardi was working from. Now, Paul Brown was part of the founding of the team, the Cleveland Browns. Um, but he was actually ousted from the Browns um, after some poor coaching performances on the tail end. And he founded a new team in the same state of Ohio, nearby Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Bengals. He was on the tail end of his coaching career when a young, once again, Bill Walsh was the offensive coordinator. Bill Walsh was obsessed with the forward pass in football because up until this point, despite there being some very good passers of the football, the game was still dominated by the run. Um, the run was seen as a safer route. Um, because when you, when you stop and think about this, think about the spatially listeners. When you hand a, a ball off to someone, uh, the variable of getting the, the, the ball to the person who is actually going to advance uh, the field position is, it's, it's, it's foolproof. If you, if you can hand a ball to someone, then it's fine. That part's fine. Then it's up to the, the people blocking for him. Uh, and it's up to the runner to run effectively, run the right way, um, pick the right gaps, so on and so forth. So it was always seen as this, um, as this insurance policy. Um, the pass was this wild card thing. Um, it was never really fully secure. Um, Vince Lombardi's teams uh, in the 60s had a fantastic quarterback by the name of Bart Starr. He could throw the football very well. But once again, the team was still predominantly a running team. Bill Walsh saw the error in this. He saw that the greatest way to advance the football was through the forward pass. Because you could throw the ball very far if a receiver of the football could find himself in the right place, you can gain quite a, quite a bit of yards in field position. Uh, he began to script plays for the Cincinnati Bengals um, coach, Paul Brown, and they had a very talented quarterback with a very strong arm at this time uh, named Greg Cook. Now, since Greg Cook was able to throw the ball very, very far, um, they were scripting plays uh, with this sort of what they would call arm talent. 
Now, the uh, the problem with this uh, with this man Greg Cook was that he wound up having a career-ending injury, and the Cincinnati Bengals have had a backup quarterback without the arm strength, and in order to save the season and to adjust for this change in personnel, the Walsh created uh, the, the preludes to a system and an overarching philosophy of football that changed the game to this day. Um, instead of focusing on throwing the ball exceptionally far, he would throw. He would have the quarterback throw to the wings. He would to to the sides laterally, shorter passes that were more secure and able to advance the football, in four yards, six yards, eight yards. With the forward pass, it was more difficult to defend, uh, but with the security of the run, uh, it was made purely out of necessity. When the great Paul Brown was announced that he was going to step down, uh, it was like very much the situation with Vince Lombardi and the New York Giants. Um, it was believed that Bill Walsh was the heir apparent to Paul Brown. However, Paul Brown chose someone else, and Bill Walsh left because he needed to be able to fully enact his philosophy as a football coach uh, entirely as a head coach. Now, Paul Brown has been quoted as saying, I didn't give the job to Bill because he's too emotional. I think he just couldn't handle the highs and lows. Personally, this is complete speculation on my part, but I think Paul Brown is actually very scared of the prowess of Bill Walsh. Um, he actually blackballed him. He gave him a bad review to every pro team uh, that Bill Walsh interviewed for head coaching job. The Green Bay Packers, he could have continued the Green Bay Packers dynasty, uh, where Vince Lombardi left off, the Los Angeles Rams, um, the Chicago Bears, um, Bill Walsh could only find a job coaching a college football program right here in the San Francisco Bay Area at Stanford University, to which he saw much success. With the proximity of success uh, of Stanford to the city of San Francisco, um, any black ball that the San Francisco 49ers franchise had from Paul Brown was not listened to. And in 1979, uh, Bill Walsh was given the head coaching job at the San Francisco 49ers, a team that, like when Vince Lombardi started the Green Bay Packers, was in shambles. Bill Walsh then had to enact his philosophy quickly as, as quickly as possible. The first two seasons, he had incredibly losing seasons. Um, I don't have the exact records on hand. I remember you play sixteen games in a season. If I remember correctly, the first two seasons were two and fourteen and three and thirteen. Far from flattering. Um, he drafted a quarterback from Notre Dame University uh, by the name of Joe Montana. Now, Joe Montana was not large in stature. He was not someone who could take hits very well, or at least it didn't look like he could. He could. Uh, he just didn't look like he had the stature for it. He was a, an elusive quarterback, meaning he had the footwork to evade the, the attack to tackle him before he could throw the football. So Joe Montana uh, be, was going to become this integral part of an offense that was originally scripted in Cincinnati. He also drafted uh, one of the greatest defensive players of all time, uh, a man by the name of Ronnie Lott. He played strong safety. Uh, safety is a position who is 
seeking to intercept a pass from the opposition um, and run it the other way for a score. The strong safety, especially in Ronnie Lott's case, was also someone who made a lot of very brutal tackles. Um, come the third season in 1981 in San Francisco. And listeners, the whole preface of this podcast is lessons from sports ball that matter. In today's day and age, sports ball is a waste of time. Watching it is a waste of time. But maybe back then there was something more to it. Because even as I haven't even begun to bring this up, but I actually get chills now thinking of this. Thinking of San Francisco. Thinking of the culture that I caught the tail end of as a child. This 49ers team that I'm about to discuss is actually a big part of that. It goes beyond the game. Bill Walsh created an offense for the San Francisco 49ers with a chip on its and a chip on its shoulder defense that was willing to show the league that they're no longer a laughing stock, that there was something to say out west. And the offense was built on this philosophy of a boxer, specifically my idol as a boxer, the marvelous. Marvin Hagler, may he rest in peace. It was an offense of beating the other team to the punch. It was a timing-based offense. It was violent, but it was precise. It was graceful, but it was brutal. And they ran this, what is now called today, the preludes of which were written in the Midwest, but the West Coast offense. And having played quarterback when I was young, my father taught me how to throw a football. I had this strong, strong arm. I could throw 60 yards when I was 12 years old. My father drilled the West Coast offense philosophy in me despite wanting to bomb it every single time. There's a certain sense of pride I have that I don't think will ever escape me. This is the West Coast. This is the wild, rugged West Coast. The fabled coast, the final frontier coast. And it happened right here. The 49ers went 13-3 and that season. And it came to the NFC Championship game. Now, once again, I'm doing a lot of prefacing. There's the, the Super Bowl, which is played between the National Football Conference champions and the American Football Conference champions. So this conference championship versus the Dallas Cowboys, um, led by Tom Landry. And I should take a quick aside. I remember why I brought up Tom Landry. In the past, please bear with me once again, listeners. Vince Lombardi uh, of the Green Bay Packers, uh, him and uh, Tom Landry, they're both on the New York Giants together. But when Vince Lombardi took over the Packers and Tom Landry took over the Cowboys, um, Vince Lombardi uh, was able to defeat Tom Landry because he thought that the the Cowboys had too many moving parts in their offense, and if they could put pressure on them, then the moving parts would collapse. It's the counterbalance philosophy to Bill Walsh. He had a lot of moving parts in his offense. He had such a rhythm-based offense and a footwork-based offense and a timing-based offense that was so precise and well-drilled 
that it took the principles of Tom Landry and his philosophy of multiple moving parts and the discipline and simplicity of execution of Vince Lombardi. If you looked at plays, and there's a lot of famous footage of this, Bill Walsh would tell his players, when you catch the ball, there's, there isn't going to be anyone for you or anyone around you for five yards, and the players would say, oh, that's very funny, we get coached too, and the plays would actually work. Um, Bill Walsh would drill footwork within Joe Montana. He says, the feet, the feet, the feet, the feet, the feet. He wasn't, you weren't, the receivers weren't ready because he didn't get the footwork right. The amount of steps he took ran completely parallel to the amount of uh, time the receivers needed to get open to make plays. Certain plays would take two steps. Certain plays would take seven steps and a jump. If the timing was right, the feet were right, no one could touch them. When the rhythm got going, no one could touch the San Francisco 49ers. I'm proud of this. Not because it's some sports team, but because there is an overarching philosophy of innovation. It wasn't just the sword as the chalk. The innovation was put to practice to perfection. And it came to the NFC Championship game against the Dallas Cowboys. And it was taking place in Candlestick Park in San Francisco. And there's a famous play that is literally just simply called The Catch. And the Dallas Cowboys were noted as a quote-unquote America's team. Uh, they had won two championships in the 1970s. And they had always, they always had the 49ers number. They had beaten them in countless, I think, at least four NFC championship games up until this point. So there was a monkey on the 49ers' back at this point. And Bill Walsh had this play that he scripted for... Uh, at the time, Joe Montana's main wide receiver, Dwight Clark, that he needed to jump high enough to be out of reach of the receivers, out of the defenders, um, to be able to catch it on his fingertips. Joe Montana executed this play to perfection, and that was a coronation for the dynasty that would come in the 1980s. Bill Walsh famously said, that to me was Camelot, that moment right there. That's when it began. And it was a moment of relief for Bill Walsh. The quote I read at the beginning. Many people running used to believe that you only have one chance to succeed at your life's work. He had multiple chances to succeed in his life's work that had failed, and in this one he had succeeded so wonderfully. It's a testament to the human spirit. It's a testament to this belief that your philosophy can work. That if you truly take the chance... You can set the world on fire. And that is one of the most beautiful lessons I've learned in life. When asked by a sportscaster, Joe Montana, uh, when you, I'm paraphrasing here, they said, you just beat, what do you think about just beating America, America's team? You beat America's team. He said, well, America's going to have to sit on the couch and watch us win the Super Bowl. And they did. And Bill Walsh defeated his former team, the Cincinnati Bengals, the San Francisco 49ers. That is the spirit of San Francisco that I adore. 
throughout the decade, we'll start to weave into some of the lessons of Joe Montana as a player, as an individual. Two seasons of moderate success uh, then brought the 49ers to 1984. 1984 was the first year of a, another quarterback by the name of Dan Marino of the Miami Dolphins. Now, Dan Marino, in his own right, is someone who I didn't really expect to dive into him but on this podcast, but Dan Marino, um, he had a throwing motion of the football that was very different to all the quarterbacks, which made him the quickest throw of the football. He was a baseball pitcher taught to throw by his father, and that throwing motion was unbelievable. He's also quick on his feet due to jumping rope from a boxing background. So this man was lighting up the game. He threw for 5,000 yards, which in 1984 hadn't been um, repeated until the, the 2000s. So he was way ahead of his time. He was this quarterback who looked like he was going to light the world on fire because he was this complete flashy juggernaut. Meanwhile, the San Francisco 49ers went 15-1. and and the two teams meeting in the Super Bowl were the Miami Dolphins and the San Francisco 49ers playing at Stanford Stadium, Bill Walsh's old stadium at Stanford University. And, and all the hype leading going into the Super Bowl wasn't about the team with the best record in the NFL. It was about the Miami Dolphins and the flashy offense led by Dan Marino. Dan Marino was named the NFL MVP, the most valuable player. And Joe Montana has a demeanor about him. They called him Joe Cool. Man had ice in his veins. They interviewed Joe Montana ahead of the Super Bowl. And they asked him if there's any, and more or less, they asked him if there's any jealousy uh, on the part of Dan Reno being the person who had all the hype around him as opposed to him. And Joe Montana very calmly said, It's his year. It's his year. He's done amazing things. But you could see this clinical, cold fury in his eyes. He was a man who was going to do whatever it took to beat you. It didn't matter if he was going to beat you by two yards. It didn't matter if he was going to beat you by 500 yards. He was going to do just enough to beat you. And he did more than enough outdueling Dan Marino 38 to, I believe, 10 in the 1984 Super Bowl. The man with ice in his veins. The man who wouldn't let the underdog label beat him. This is a man who was going to always find a way to win. He was never in love with a way to win, but he was a man who would always find a way to win. The mid-1980s saw the 49ers become even more offensively interesting. They were putting up records through the 80s, but when it came down to it, they were losing in the playoffs to teams that were dominated by the run. You know, it was almost back to this, oh, the, the sword is mightier than the chalk, although the chalk had changed the game, although many NFL teams hadn't accepted the fact that the game had been changed. The 49ers had devastating losses in these years to the beasts of the East and the big, bad Chicago Bears. 
Bill Walsh was also a man of exceptional personnel management. Um, he's been said to be able to stretch a man almost right before his breaking point and be able to bring them back to healing with a bit of humor and a bit of wit. And that's actually what the team needed in 1988. Bill Walsh was actually starting to think about the replacement for Joe Montana because he only wanted the best years from his players. He's a bit very insensitive in that matter, but he was striving for greatness. He had drafted the greatest receiver of the football of all time, a man named Jerry Rice, a man we'll get into momentarily. But he had also traded for a quarterback by the name of Steve Young, a quarterback I grew up watching as a little tyke. And he created a controversy within the 49ers camp uh, between the two quarterbacks. And then that unnerved the team. And eventually, he eventually even asked his coaches how much they thought they could get for Joe Montana in a trade. And they all said he was nuts. And he finally committed to Joe Montana, which this whole controversy lit an even brighter, cold fire within Joe Montana. The 49ers returned to the Super Bowl against, once again, Bill Walsh's former team, the Cincinnati Bengals. They were down uh, by a score, by a, little, by a little less than a score, in the fourth quarter of the game, two minutes left. They have 90 yards to advance. The team is tense. Joe Montana goes to the huddle, cool as ever, cool under pressure. This is a lesson for all of you. Be stoic with this pressure. Be laser focused on it. But not emotional, clinical, assassin-like. Even making light of it at times. He got in the huddle, and as a leader, all of his players, he noticed that were stressed out and tense. He looked up at the stands and saw an actor by the name of John Candy. He said, is that John Candy? Okay, yeah, here's the play. And he led the 49ers in a 90-yard drive to win the Super Bowl and to collect Bill Walsh's third title. Bill Walsh then retired from coaching, and his assistant George Safer took over. And the players hated Bill Walsh so much at this point for all the torture they put uh, that he put them through to make them become the best versions of themselves. That the next season they became hellbent on winning a title without Bill Walsh. Went 14-2 and two, and in 1989. Went up against the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl led by a strong-arm quarterback and offensive juggernaut named John Elway. And they thrashed him 55 to 10. It was, it was ugly. Within that 49ers camp was a man named Jerry Rice, as I mentioned before. Jerry Rice did not have the flashy speed that many wide receivers had. He was clocked at only running a 4.6 second 40-yard dash. And for those of you on the metric system, I know that means nothing to you, but that was relatively slow for a wide receiver. But Jerry Rice grew up in Mississippi, the son of a stonemason. Being a stonemason is incredibly hard work, and he had to work as hard as his father. And then he took that work ethic to football. It was a work ethic that never died. 
there's a work ethic that saw him running a hill in San Mateo, California. It's two miles up. Every single day it became an obsession. He was the most intelligent wide receiver to play the game. He was able to read coverages and read defenses to a T. And he had what was called game time speed. He may not have had clock speed, but if he caught the ball behind you, you were not catching him. Now, this isn't a testament to some kind of you know athletic prowess. It's actually a testament to his work ethic. Now, coming from a sports science point of view, he actually was developing some type 2B muscle fibers. So it's power, but over a long period of time of endurance. A lot of people can be fast, but they'll get progressively slower as the game goes. He didn't, they didn't have endurance of speed, which is a middle ground. And him having that endurance background by running these hill sprints, by running these long hill runs, um, he was able to outrun absolutely everybody, no matter how truly, quote-unquote, fast that they were. And this is a testament to his work ethic, and this is a testament to his competitive prowess. Now, going into the early 90s, uh, Joe Montana was injured for two years. He actually had a bicep torn off of his arm by a defender from the New York Giants. And Steve Young stepped in. Steve Young had to be the following act here, then the greatest quarterback of all time, Joe Montana. And the Dallas Cowboys had a new coach at this time, a new ownership of new players, and had defeated the 49ers twice in a row in the NFC Championship, which was a big thorn in the side of Jerry Rice. Jerry Rice goes up to Michael Irvin, a wide receiver from the Dallas Cowboys. A week later at the Pro Bowl in Hawaii, he said, I want you to know I'm already getting ready for next season. His work ethic was just absurd. He's, he's really the David Goggins of football. He's just unbelievable. Um, and Steve Young had this big monkey on his back that you're never going to be as good as Joe. You're never going to be as good as Joe. You're never going to be as good as Joe. And he led them to a Super Bowl win against the San Diego Chargers. But before that, they beat that Dallas Cowboys team 30-20. to they finally got that monkey off their back. And Steve Young threw six, record six touchdown passes in the Super Bowl win against the San Diego Chargers, but that's not the lesson I'm talking about. The lesson I'm talking about is Jerry Rice. The lesson I'm talking about is unbridled, violent work ethic. Steve Young went to the offices and the facilities of the 49ers a week later to pick something up, some check of some sorts. I don't remember the exact details. And he saw Jerry Rice practicing a week after they won the Super Bowl. If that doesn't give you chills, I don't know what does. Another man on this team, and he was only on this team for one year, was a man by the name of Neon Dion Sanders, also known as Prime Time. Dion Sanders played a position called cornerback someone who covered receivers like Jerry Rice, and him and Jerry Rice had many duels while Deion Sanders still played for the Atlanta Falcons. Deion Sanders, though, is actually a testament more towards intelligence and emotional intelligence and expression and personality. Deion Sanders played for the Florida State Seminoles, a college football team in the late 1980s. And he noticed when he was speaking to sports agents that his position was one of the lowest paid. And he got into football very simply to bring his mother out of poverty. 
He was going to make his mother rich. That was his goal. So he created a personality. He created a persona called Primetime. You loved him. You hated him. Didn't matter. You had to see him. That was Prime. And he actually rehearsed lines in the mirror that he would say after making big plays at Florida State. They said, it's prime time and about time. And when asked if that's his actual personality, he says, oh, you can find out for yourself. I mean, I'll say this. Does Michael Jackson walk around his house with that glove on his hand? Shit, no, he don't. And it's a fascinating lesson in persona there. You can cultivate a certain aspect of yourself and build it up. To truly change perspective of others and truly change dynamics of negotiation. It's promotion, it's a kind of promotional thing that has gotten out of hand in today's day and age of mixed martial arts, like with Conor McGregor, but in his time it was appropriate. And in his time it was flashy and something that you needed to see and it got the job done. He was a man who was incredibly well disciplined, who was someone who was obsessive with watching tape of the game. Incredibly fast. But what stuck out to people most about Deion Sanders was being unapologetically himself and thriving in this swinging rhythm. I bring this up because him and Jerry Rice we were very excited to play on the same team for a year when Deion Sanders signed with the 49ers. Deion wanted to go out partying before the Super Bowl when they were in Miami about to play the Chargers and Jerry Rice and him had a very, very heated argument because Jerry Rice was the hyper-disciplined, you always grind harder. And Deion noticed that the team was very tightly wound, especially from the last two previous two losses. He says, if we can just cut loose a little bit, if we can loosen up and get in the rhythm of things, we can be great. It's important, again, this sort of balance of opposites, this grinder and this rhythm-based guy. You have to have that balance between the two. And they're both exceptionally great. So if you can cultivate those dynamics within yourself, you'll be in very good shape. In terms of personality, in terms of authentic expression of one's self, never let people corral you into being a certain way. Never let someone's view of you be the way that you live your life if it is counter to who it is that you believe that you are. Who it is that, not that you believe that you are, that you know that you are. Two men in particular come to mind. Two more quarterbacks before we move on from football. American football, it is. Roger Staubach and Kurt Warner. Roger Staubach was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys in the 1960s and 70s. He was a good Catholic boy from Cincinnati. Went to Navy. He was a quarterback for Annapolis, the United States Naval Academy. He served four years in the Navy after, and he became a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. Known as Roger the Dodger, the comeback kid, Tom Landry was someone who very much liked to script plays, and he would go off script and improvise, and he would start running with the footballs, but was supposed to pass again, dodging the opposition. And you'd see Tom Landry on the sideline yelling, no, 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 
But when it was working, he'd start yelling, go, 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 go. And Roger Staubach was quarterback at the time where another man who was a media sensation by the name of Joe Namath, Broadway Joe, became the quarterback of the New York Jets. And, New York, and Joe Namath is known for being a philandering partier. Uh, drank his face off, quite frankly. And he was, Roger Staubach was constantly compared to Joe Namath. And one day in an interview he said, and I posted this before, on my, actually on my aesthetics page, uh, in a story, Blood and Rain Visceral. He said, you always love to compare me to Joe Namath. You know, I enjoy sex just as, Joe, just as much as Joe Namath. I just enjoy it with one girl. And that happened to be his wife. I found that to be a very reverent moment. And that to be, I'm going to be someone who isn't going to compromise my morals and I don't have to be boring as someone who doesn't have some vices. That's a big lie in our day and age, especially returning briefly to blood and rain and the solar sphere and the renaissance of men and these, all these realms of content that are trying to restore traditional values. It's important to say that you don't need to have vices, that you don't need to be degenerate to be cool. There's lots of ways to be cool without being degenerate. Plain and simple, guys. And the last quarterback, Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner was a quarterback who had a mediocre college career who went undrafted in the NFL draft. He had a child and a wife, and he tried out on practice squads for teams like the Green Bay Packers, and... He was cut, and he was just to make ends meet. He was working as a stalker at a grocery store while his wife. And there's a movie coming out about this in December, uh, in Christmas, called American Underdog. His wife begged him not to give up on his dream, so he prepared. And he got the call up from the newly founded Arena Football League. You know, f- playing football on a field half the size, indoors, and he just lit the league up until he got the he got the. Gained the attention of the St. Louis Rams, a team that was about to further build upon Bill Walsh's philosophy of offense to go on to create the team, the greatest show on turf, the most effective, powerful offense of all time. He was a backup quarterback for this team, and the quarterback that they... uh, that they had signed was the, the, the person that they were going to build this offense around. And Kurt Warner begged to begin the start, and they said, you're too old to be a rookie. <laughs> actually, I don't know if they actually said this, uh, but it's been in the trailer that I keep seeing on Instagram. You're, uh, you're too old to be a rookie, and you're too green for a veteran. You're not ready. There was an offensive genius uh, on the as offensive coordinator by the name of Mike Marks. But Dick Vermeil, the head coach, saw something at Kurt Warner. Uh, for, the name is escaping me. It doesn't matter. The, the, the name of the starting quarterback, um, he got injured, and Kurt Warner had to step in. And he lit the league on fire and won an NFL. He won a Super Bowl. He became an NFL MVP two years in a row. Someone who did not let the opinions of others, whether oh, you're too old or you're too green, get in the way. It's a very simple concept that you see time and time again, but it's a very, very simple concept that you need to be reminded of daily. 
Do not let someone else define you. Do not minimize your dream for your given circumstances. Have faith. As a bridge, we're going to discuss the two athletes who are sort of one-offs from the other sport. The other wings of sports that we'll get into is predominantly basketball. We're going to touch upon, very briefly, a baseball athlete. We're going to touch upon a, a association football coach or just regular true football and a true football player. Let's start with Dwight Gooden. My father grew up in Queens, New York. My father's a full-blooded Canarian who was born in Cuba, who narrowly escaped communism, then went to Venezuela, and then he grew up in New York City, in Queens, right around the time that the New York Mets, the New York Metropolitans, became a baseball franchise as an expansion team for the major, for major League Baseball. He grew up with the 1969 Mets, the Comeback Mets, the Tom Seaver Mets, the amazing, amazing Mets I hear about all the time. And in 1985, uh, the early 1980s, they were terrible. They were a horrible team. And so they drafted two people named uh, Daryl Strawberry, a hitter, and uh, a pitcher, somebody who throws the ball. It's very, guys, it's very simple for the international guys. Maybe if you're a cricket fan, it's a baller, basically. Um, the man who throws the ball, the pitcher. And Dwight Gooden was someone who grew up in Tampa, Florida, and his father grew up coaching him. He said, if you want to be a coach, it's going to take a lot of work. He said, okay. He had this obsessive preparation. And I'm only actually bringing this up for one story that I truly relate with and I think will serve you all well. When Dwight Gooden was drafted, he had his debut in the 1985 season. When he got the call up for the minor leagues, the practice leagues, essentially, for those of you international listeners again. And he was given his first start as a pitcher playing against the Texas Rangers in Dallas. As a fighter and as an actor, I was obsessive, almost to an unhealthy point with my preparation. I would get to the theater, I would get to the gym, I would get to the venue, whatever it is, absurdly early, and take my mind to hell and back to prepare. Dwight Gooden went to the stadium in, at Arlington, Texas so early that the gate wasn't even open that he actually had to hop the fence to just get acclimated. He needed those first two pitches to tell whether or not he belonged there. And He waited there for hours. He got his mind right. He needed to bridge that gap from where he was at. He needed to make that leap of faith in his mind. He needed to have that as set as possible, as prepared as any human could possibly be for those first two pitches. And he threw them and he said, okay, I belong here. I belong here. He became the strikeout king for a season. He became what looked like he was going to be the greatest pitcher of all time. My father talks about it regularly. Dwight Gooden. Dwight Gooden. My goodness, Dwight Gooden. 
a K in baseball is slang for a strikeout, meaning he, you throw three, uh, three pitches that a, a batter, for more or less, we'll just keep it simple. He swings at and misses, meaning that batter's out. That's a strikeout. And they had a K corner for Dwight Gooden because this guy got strikeouts like nobody's business. My father actually has a story himself. He took in his, uh, a business associate of his to a, to a Mets game. And who was pitching was Dwight Gooden. Dwight Gooden threw 18 strikeouts. And my father said, I just want you to know, it's not always like this. He says, yeah, sure, sure. A couple weeks later, they go to another baseball game. And who's, who's pitching? Dwight Gooden. What does he do? He pitches 19 strikeouts. This <laughs> is absolutely unbelievable. Unfortunately, his teammate, Daryl Strawberry, got him addicted to amphetamines and alcohol. And despite winning a World Series in 1986, Dwight Gooden was never the same. It's very sad. But the lesson here, once again, is that very pivotal gap that you need to bridge between being where you're at and being where, that you, where you want to be in terms of your skill mastery, in terms of your life's work. That onset onto that highest level. When I have my first glory kickboxing match, I'm going to be at the arena so early. Because I need the, that first 20 seconds saying, no, I belong here. I belong here. Whatever it is that you do, remember that. Remember that lesson. Getting into the sport of association football. Let's get the athlete out of the way. Diego Maradona. Diego Maradona was a degenerate. Plain and simple. I'm going to get that out of the way. Drug abuser, philanderer, heavy drinker. Let's, let's say what needs to be said now. I'm talking about the lessons here. Not the, not the individual. Diego Maradona was... The greatest player to play the game, except maybe Pele, um, of the 20th century up until the recent uh, rise of Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, his fellow Argentine. Um, he was an, an electric player um, and and a very entertaining player. Um, he was a fan favorite. He was, like Dion, um, in the way that he unapologetically expressed himself, although he was less precise than Dion. Um, he was less reverent than Dion. Dion expressed himself within a certain set of parameters, to be honest. The only big controversy from Dion Sanders was when he was playing both baseball and football for the Atlanta Braves and the Atlanta Falcons, respectively, and tried to play two games in the same day that were in different cities. That was a bit of a fiasco, but he was still very respectful about the entire situation. Diego Maradona lacked this respect. However, people adored him all the same. Um, he single-handedly, and that's not only a pun for the, the hand of God handball goal against England in the semifinals in the 1986 World Cup, but in the rest of the World Cup, he was one of two men in the history of the game to quote-unquote single-handedly will his team to a World Cup victory, the other being Garincha uh, with Brazil in 1962. 
the thing I want to highlight about Maradona is his expression of movement. Now, Ido Portal, uh, the movement coach, um, for the former movement coach of Conor McGregor, when Conor McGregor was actually relevant, um, when he had the karate stance and was a lot more fluid before he got this idea that he was this pure boxer, which is... That's a whole other thing entirely, really. Um, him and Sugar Ray Robinson, uh, the greatest boxer of all time, were the two people that Ido Portal discussed. He talked about how a lot of their movements were unnecessary when it came to the contexts of their sport. Now, Sugar Ray Robinson, and this is the only sort of this and Hagler, and those are actually, I think, the two... Personally, in the, in the Rushmore of boxing, uh, to take a brief aside to the sports I actually care about, which are combat sports, for me, the Rushmore of boxing is Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, Marvin Hagler, and Sugar Ray Robinson. Sugar Ray Robinson being the greatest of all time. Um, Sugar Ray Robinson uh, was a tap dancer and a jazz musician. Um, if you see his jab... Um, it was rooted in that sort of tap dancing background. His footwork was flawless. It's actually the style that Muhammad Ali adopted. He looked up to Sugar Ray Robinson. And whenever Muhammad Ali was interviewed about, you know, who the greatest of all time is, he says, I'm the greatest heavyweight of all time. The greatest of all time, plain and simple, is Sugar Ray Robinson. Now, in the warm-ups of Sugar Ray Robinson and back to Diego Maradona alike, they had a lot of movements in almost dancing movements that were expressive of who they are. And they were, un and I'm going to quote Ido Portal now, they were so unnecessary, but oh, so necessary. They got themselves in the mode to play. It was these unnecessary movements that sort of shook out any jitters that worked out the kinks that made them truly warm up, not just in their bodies, but their minds and their souls, um, to have them work in unison. And if you see the way Diego Maradona moved on the, on the pitch, no one moved like him. Um, he was taking angles that no one was taking. He was making jumps that no one was making. He was making decisions that people would think were absolutely insane and nonsensical, but just perfectly executed at just the right time. It seemed wild, but it was far more controlled. Um, that has to do with a, the quick lesson, folks, about movement. We're a, we, there's a constant trope within this realm of Instagram and social media that I inhabit of re return to nature, return to tradition, escape modernity. And a big part of modernity is the fact that we're sedentary, we're desk-bound. And it's, it, it wears on us. We're meant to move. We're meant to climb. We're meant to dance. And if you're not a big climber, you're not a big dancer, you should find some expression of movement, not just lifting weights. Not, even, not just even martial arts. Maybe martial arts for the sake of moving in a space rather than actually hitting somebody. That's expression. Um, when you find those expressions of movement, when you find your own rhythm, especially as a martial artist too, uh, it'll actually better translate to the movements that are quote-unquote necessary. That's a wonderful lesson from Diego Maradona, as highlighted by Ido Portal. Um, the other lesson from football is Johan Cruyff. Now, Johan Cruyff is, you know, I think in the top five players of all time, the Dutchman. Um, 
you know, he led the Clockwork Orange. I, I believe he led the Clockwork Orange Dutch national team to a World Cup final. I know for a fact the 1974 where they lost against Germany in Germany. And I don't know if he was part of the same team that lost to Argentina in the final in Argentina. Um, an incredibly smart midfielder, uh, ahead of his time in terms of intelligent decision-making with intelligence and calculation being the first uh, quality in mind, rather than expression, rather than finesse, rather than power, like a lot of the German football philosophy has. Um, he played in Barcelona, um, and he had Barcelona to this day um, reveres him. Uh, he's recently passed, I think a couple of years ago, um, as a, a, a godfather of Barcelona because he came back, um, he, he won many championships um, with Barcelona at a time when they were uh, getting, uh, they, were, they were dominated by Real Madrid. And um, for those of you who don't know, the El Clasico rival, um, it was a lot more symbolic under the Franco era. Uh, Francisco Franco, the, the dictator, I'm calling him a dictator is a bit, I don't want to get political here, is a bit nonsensical. Um, you know, the nationalist that was Francisco Franco. Now, Francisco Franco uh, wanted Spain to only speak one language. And most people don't know that Spain has a lot more languages than just Spanish. Uh, Leonis, um, where I'm from, the Basque country, we speak Basque. Um, and the Catalonians are probably the most radical uh, and fierce about speaking uh, Catalan. And Barcelona is obviously in Catalonia. Um, so Francisco, it, the, the rivalry became more and more symbolic of that struggle between Catalan autonomy and Spanish centralism. Um, so Johan Cruyff came to the Barcelona and sort of delivered them from this domination of Real Madrid. And um, he came back, though. The thing I really want to highlight is he came back as a coach in the late 80s. And, and at another time when Barcelona was uh, not doing very well and they beat Real Madrid very consistently and they won their first European Cup in 1992. Um, but the philosophy of play, um, it's very much, it, it actually kind of reminds me of a portmanteau of, um, of Vince Lombardi's philosophy of minimalism and Bill Walsh's philosophy of many moving parts for the sake of small but inevitable, inevitably accumulating um, gains of movement. Um, the West Coast offense in American football is about the, the, the short forward pass. Um, tiki-taka style football of Barcelona is about the tiny passes that accumulate and confuse and hold possession until uh, it makes its way down the field towards an inevitable goal. Um, this is deployed wonderfully well, but the, the reason I say it's a bit of a portmanteau is um, one of the famous Johan Cruyff quotes is, playing football is very simple, but playing simple football is the hardest thing there is. So he strived for this minimalism, but he understood that a bunch of small decisions that accumulate is the most efficient um, when performed correctly. Um, as opposed to some of the long passes of Samba football with the Brazilians and the power um, long cross style of the Germans. When Tiki Taka has been deployed effectively um, by the Spanish national team, which is the greatest national team to ever be assembled, the only team to win three major championships in a row, uh, 2008 European Cup, the 2010 World Cup, and the 2012 European Cup, beating Italy in that final 4 to nothing, 4 nil. if we're going back to the proper lingo here. It's, it's a philosophy that 
has been wildly successful now. When it wasn't at its best, it's been dominated by other teams. Not dominated, but it's been beaten by other teams that um, better executed their philosophy. But at the highest level, um, there was there was a stretch where Barcelona... I mean, they also had the greatest player of all time in Lionel Messi, but there's a stretch from about 2008 to about 2015 where if Barcelona and Spain were on, there was, there was no stopping them. I'm very much akin to the San Francisco 49ers in the 80s. Bill Belichick, who's the current, again, the current coach of the New England Patriots back in the 80s, was the defensive coordinator of the New York Giants. And he's been quoted in saying he, he hated Joe Montana because that guy did just enough to beat you. And with uh, Bill Walsh's rhythm-based offense, once it got going, it, you, weren't, you, you wouldn't be able to do anything. You had to stop it at the beginning or you weren't going to stop it at all. It was a very similar dynamic with us. That accumulation, uh, it's, you see it in fighting, you see it in the way you go about your day. You know, there's a lot of uh, quotes from people who have served in the United States Armed Forces about that first decision, that onset being key, because it starts the accumulation of good decisions. It starts that train, and it makes it easier rather than starting later in the day where you feel like you've already fallen behind. It sets the tone. And that accumulation can skyrocket into a more productive 16 hours than you could have possibly imagined. So, let that be a lesson for you. And the final sport we're going to be discussing today is basketball. Now, um, it's sort of central around uh, the coach Phil Jackson. Um, if you don't live, if you don't live under a rock, you know who Michael Jordan is. He's the greatest basketball player of all time, um, and someone who dared to play the same position and play the same way um, was Kobe Bryant, and he came very close to out uh, Michael Jordan being Michael Jordan, but he had two downfalls in some finals appearances that prevented him from doing so. And a teammate of his is another man I want to highlight, Dennis Rodman. Um, and someone who emulated, uh, who dared to challenge him, um, for better or for worse, uh, Alan Iverson. Um, I keep saying we're sitting here talking about practice, because just, for those of you who don't know, uh, we'll get to that. Um, but Phil Jackson came to the Chicago Bulls uh, as coach in. 1989, yes. Um, I, I, the, the name of the coach before him is escaping me, but the Chicago Bulls drafted Michael Jordan, the greatest player of all time, in 1984. Um, they were a team in shambles, like a lot of these stories uh, have started. And he was basically willing his team to victories. Um, at the time, the league was dominated by two dynasties between the Los Angeles Lakers, led by Magic Johnson, and the Boston Celtics, led by, um, led by uh, Larry Bird and company. Um, and here comes Michael Jordan uh, in the same conference as the Boston Celtics, and he dropped 63 points. Uh, in the playoffs against the Celtics in their absolute best year as a franchise. <laughs> Still narrowly beating Jordan, but he almost willed it against one of the greatest teams ever assembled uh, with no help whatsoever. Um, then came a coach that was actually, uh, you know, really centering everything around Jordan, but they found themselves um, being beaten by the Boston Celtics and a team that uh, gained steam 
in the late 80s, uh, the Bad Boys, Detroit Pistons, led by Isaiah Thomas, the great point guard, and featuring the greatest defensive player to ever play the game, the great Dennis Rodman. Um, Rodman is, to this day, the only person who ever effectively covered Jordan. Now, granted, Jordan was still scoring like crazy, but uh, he's Rodman ru ruined a lot of Jordan's nights uh, while he still played for the Detroit Pistons. When Phil Jackson came to be coach, he realized he had a very tricky task of, they called him the Zen master because he had this superstar, he had this greatest of all time talent that needed to be utilized uh, to the best of his ability, but within a, a system that, um, within a system that was actually progressive and actually had a strategy for every given situation using the personnel that they had, including Michael Jordan, including Scottie Pippen, uh, the other players and company, um, but still actually playing, for lack of a better term, team basketball, not being carried by one man. Um, Tex Winters, uh, the sort of chief offensive mind of the Chicago Bulls, uh, deployed something called the triangle offense, where um, actually, much like you're seeing, you're starting to see a trend here between Tiki Taka triangle offense and um, you know, West Coast offense with American football, um, creating these matchups laterally um, through the accumulation of small passes and taking very strange angles um, over time. And but it's more to me, it's more of a lesson in man management where if you have certain this this can apply to ex people externally around you, and it's like it can also apply to entities within yourself. You have qualities that are powerful that can get out of hand though. They can get a little too wild and then you sort of compromise the discipline and organization within yourself, within your life, one of the tasks that you have every single day. Um, this concept was expressed perfectly by Phil Jackson. Um, he let Jordan win every single battle in terms of discussion that didn't directly affect the team. He let Jordan run wild as much as he possibly could within a certain set of parameters that feel very naturally negotiated. In the practices, Michael Jordan was known to, known to torment his teammates, but he also knew, Phil Jackson also knew that he was doing so to make his teammates the same level of competitive in nature as Michael Jordan. So. He let certain things like that slide. He let, he let the wildness slide as long as the integrity of the system was maintained. Um, he, Michael Jordan won three championships in a row, uh, 1991 through 1983. He retired briefly to go play baseball. Some people say it was due to some kind of gambling conspiracy. I have absolutely no idea. Um, and uh, for two, for about a, I think a season and a half, uh, the Bulls were without Jordan. Um, and Jordan then came back, and Phil Jackson needed to put together new pieces for the team, and a misfit that no team wanted at the time was the aforementioned Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman, uh, we'll get into him now. Um, Dennis Rodman is actually my favorite player in the history of basketball. He was originally Allen Iverson growing up when I first saw him play as a little kid, but I... Saw Dennis Rodman. I saw a story later. I, it just—it actually blew me away. Now there's going to be a lot of prefaces with this, but Dennis Rodman um, 
grew up in Dallas, the Dallas area, with a single mother and two older sisters. He was deeply antisocial. He was uh, a nerd. Um, he was heavily bullied, not athletic. He was 5'7". He's 5'7 throughout his high school career. Became a janitor at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport and stole some jewelry and gave it to a bunch of people he wanted to be friends with. Um, he eventually got caught, but he was let off. That summer, he grew a foot. He grew to be 6'7". There was a court nearby, and he started playing basketball at this court 10 hours a day just to get good. Started playing at a local community college team. Started dominating in the community college level until a second uh, second division NCAA college basketball team in Oklahoma came down to speak to him at his home in Dallas due to his very poor mental health, unfortunately. Um, he was locking himself in his room. The coach would not leave until they let him in, and he eventually went to this, this university in Oklahoma to play basketball. His first game, he scored 25 points and 10 rebounds, and he went to the coach and said, I'm so sorry if I disappointed you, when he had this absolutely lights-out performance. He was drafted by the Pistons, like I said before, in the second round, and he became, uh, under Chuck Daly, a uh, coach who became a, a father figure to Rodman, um, this absolute defensive superstar. Um, he didn't know how to take all the praise. He saw all those people on his team as family. And when the team began to disband, he spun out into depression because his foundation mentally was built on this. And there was a famous story where one day he was in the parking lot of the Palace, the, the stadium where the, the Detroit Pistons played, and he had a, he had, I believe he had a, a, I don't know, a handgun or a shotgun, and he was about to shoot himself, and he fell asleep before he shot himself. And to this day, he explains that situation as... I wanted to, I didn't really want to kill myself, I wanted to kill the old Dennis Rodman to be born again. It's a very disturbing story. And he was sent, he was traded to the San Antonio Spurs, um, where he was a stout defensive presence that became the greatest rebounder of the basketball of all time. Um, and became this wild misfit, this party animal who dyed his hair and dated Madonna and did a bunch of drugs and drank in excess, and he just sort of went off the rails. It's a wild man, but it never actually affected his play. In fact, uh, David Robinson, a 6'10 center for the San Antonio Spurs, uh, was constantly berated by Rodman for being too soft as a competitor. The Spurs wanted nothing to do with him after two seasons, and Phil Jackson, the Zen master, picked up Dennis Rodman. He, they met at a uh, they met at some kind of a lodge, and Phil Jackson uh, met Rodman, and Rodman didn't stand up to meet him. He says, "Rodman, Dennis, stand up, shake my hand." And he says, "Do you want to be a Chicago Bull?" And Rodman says, "I don't give a damn." And um, they signed him anyway. I don't. Back any of the behavior off the court of Dennis Rodman. There's famous stories, uh, you know, in the, the Last Dance documentary. They uh, they talked about how in the final season with the Bulls in 1998, he uh, 
when Scottie Pippen came back from injury, he wanted to go to Vegas for two days, and he wound up staying for seven days. But he was so important to the team that Michael Jordan actually went to Vegas, found him in his hotel room, and brought him back to Chicago. Um, in between in between NBA Finals games against the Utah Jazz, he flew to Michigan, missed practice to appear with Hulk Hogan in WWE. Like there's this man was just an absolute lunatic. But, but. When you saw this man play, there's something within him that transcends the game for me. There is a non-stop relentlessness with that man. Does not care how he looks. Does not care if he looks like a lunatic leaping into the stands to get a rebound. He will terrorize you. He will get into your mind and ruin you through pure, sheer will. Just like the will he had to get good at basketball, not in high school, completely on his own. Now, the growth spurt obviously helped. and Not everyone's going to have a foot. Uh, the growth spurt of a foot, but still being, being tall doesn't guarantee that you're going to be in the National Basketball Association. And he carried that fury and channeled that fury every single game playing 40 plus minutes grabbing at least 12 rebounds a game and shutting down some of the greatest players in the history of the game you took a look into his eyes you saw this ocean you saw this you saw this storm and that storm was never ending And it was a beautiful thing to see. Now, again, Phil Jackson was managing all these personalities. He had the domineering personality of Jordan, and he had this wild man personality of Dennis Rodman. Speaking of storms, Phil Jackson also in the future, uh, actually I don't want to get ahead of myself, so I'm playing some, some strange timelines here, listeners, my apologies. Um, Phil Jackson had to deal with Michael Jordan. Now let's talk about Michael Jordan. He actually had a very similar drive to Dennis Robin, but it's, it's actually a lot more precise and it's a lot more conducive to um, one's goals. borderline sociopathic. He might actually be a sociopath. I don't really know. Um, but there was an obsession and there was a fuel of failure that I haven't seen by any man in any sport. He failed to make it to the NBA Finals seven seasons in a row despite being the greatest player. And he never let the frustration derail him. He actually drew strength from the failure. You saw the accumulation of strength he gained from pressing against a force constantly that was stronger than him, whether that came in the form of the Boston Celtics or the Detroit Pistons. He didn't care. He kept pressing. This is slightly different from Rodman. Rodman is a bit blind in the sense that he just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. Michael Jordan knew exactly where it was that he wanted to go. And he kept, he kept pressing 
and pressing and pressing, knowing full well how much he was failing. That accumulation of force, again, seeing a trend here. West Coast offense. Tiki Taka football. Diego Maradona and his movements. Triangle offense. You're seeing this accumulation of movement that eventually becomes absolutely overwhelming. And once he broke the threshold that was the Detroit Pistons, there was no stopping him. It was like someone compressed a spring and then it was just unleashed. That is a valuable lesson for any of you who are, are quitting or even contemplating quitting because you're constantly, quote-unquote, hitting your head against the wall and really you're accumulating strength that will eventually overwhelm the threshold in front of you. That's the lesson to take from Michael Jordan. Someone who tried to be Jordan was Kobe Bryant, rest in peace. Same height, same position, far less athletic. No jumping, no, no, no jumping capabilities like Jordan, nowhere near as explosive. More fluid, but he was actually talentless at the sport of basketball from young age. He was absolutely terrible. And... The, the people who have cultivated the assassin's mindset in the sport of basketball is like maybe five of them. That's it. Uh, Larry Bird was the first. Actually, I shouldn't say that Bill Russell, but that's a whole different story. That's the 60s. Bill Russell, Larry Bird, uh, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Dennis Rodman. Um, these are people who are clinical. Uh, Tim Duncan, for that matter, actually. These are people who are clinical. These are people who do not let their emotions rule them. They either completely shut off their emotions or they know how to fuel their emotions in a cold and calculated way. And I'd say the coldest is Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant went pro right out of high school, Lower Marion High School in the 1996 draft. Went to the storied Los Angeles Lakers franchise being paired up with a larger than life superstar in Shaquille O'Neal. A 310 pound, seven foot one center that was an absolute freight train and unstoppable force. Kobe did not care that he was 18 years old and a rookie. He very coldly expressed himself and says, I don't care. He was up at four in the morning and constantly in the gym before anybody. And Phil Jackson noticed this to the point where they started having breakfast every morning before he would do his solo training. His work ethic is probably the best of the bunch. Um, Michael Jordan would actually rest when he needed to rest. Uh, him and Kobe Bryant both had the same trainer, and by, a, a man by the name of Tim Grover. When uh, Grover took over Kobe's conditioning, uh, Grover would tell him to rest, and Kobe would keep training regardless because that's what got him there. Michael Jordan would rest, and this is actually to Kobe's detriment, we later find out, and it, it accumulated into his Achilles injury. Um, that's force accumulating towards the wrong thing. Um, Kobe Bryant... Uh, there's, a, there's a famous story where uh, in a 
champ in a conference championship game against the Utah Jazz as a rookie. He he airballed four shots in a row because uh, he just simply didn't have the legs left. He didn't have his conditioning right at the time. And Shaquille O'Neal uh, went up to him, you know, tried to encourage him. You know, as a rookie, man, no, you would be okay. And and Kobe's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. He played injured. He played sleep deprived. He was someone who truly did not care about his emotions. In the context of winning. In the context of working. Never made a single excuse in his entire life. Completely unsentimental in his play. Because for him, that was the only route. Tried to be better than Jordan at the position. Came one ring short. Came a whole bunch of other accolades short, but some would argue that he's the mentally tougher of the two. I would actually have to agree because Michael Jordan is more talented and more talented to work with than Kobe ever did. That's where, in, in a lot of senses, Kobe's technique and skill were actually actually surpassed Jordan. Now, Jordan um, used to be the kind of player that went for all the points. He wanted to be Defensive Player of the Year and the MVP in the same year and the score in the same year, and he did that in 1991. Um, but a lot of teammates of his talk about how Jordan actually, despite being this, the greatest scorer of all time, he also, in his best years, he became somewhat of a general on the court. He knew how to funnel people um, and, and pick on the right people to to turn it up at the right times in order to get the best out of the team. And that's something that Kobe never had. Kobe was never a man-manager like uh, like Michael Jordan was. And I think Michael Jordan actually learned that from Phil Jackson, whereas Kobe Bryant always had a chip on his shoulder, actually to his detriment. It's very interesting to compare the mindsets of the two. And again, it's not about a game. It's about mindsets that work. These are principles that can be applied to life. That's the whole reason for this podcast. It's not the stats, it's the effectiveness of the mind and the tools that you have and the situations that are put in front of you and the people you have to work with. Kobe's antisocial nature and chip on his shoulder nature uh, caused a rift between him and Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, when Shaquille O'Neal came back after their first of three championships in a three-peat completely overweight, Kobe said, I'll do more. And he dropped 40 points, I think, nine games in a row. And he's uh, Phil Jackson, the great man-manager. He knew that he could speak to Kobe more frankly, and he had to manage the personality of Shaquille O'Neal that was very unstable uh, when he had no confidence. Um, so he told Kobe, and we're losing the big man. I need you to lighten up so Shaquille O'Neal can get his confidence back, which is masterful um, by Phil Jackson. And, again, they called him the Zen master. And Kobe did so reluctantly, he was upset, but they got Shaquille O'Neal back. And the two of them together are probably the greatest duo that ever played the game together. Um, Shaquille O'Neal also described Phil Jackson as someone who would put in the right conflicts and the right storms at the right time because the result he wanted would be something that could only come as the aftermath of these kinds of rifts. The name of the podcast is Blood and Rain, gentlemen. So, anyone who's talking about storms is going to be good in my book. And that sort of sums up, you know, Kobe, um, Jordan, Rodman, and the last one is a, is a little bit of a childhood bit for me. It's a, 
Allen Iverson, AI. Drafted number one in 1996 out of Georgetown, the same year that Kobe Bryant was drafted. And you want to talk about unapologetically himself? You know, people who are most unapologetically themselves in each sport. I really couldn't. Probably Deion Sanders in football. Um, who knows? Maybe Mickey Mantle in baseball. Diego in true football. Comes to basketball, no one has ever expressed himself more authentically than Allen Iverson. An incredibly, only only six foot tall, playing shooting guard, scorching teams, dropping 40 points on them regularly with his quickness, his fluidity, and his attitude. His attitude was for better or for worse. Very similar to Rodman, but more channeled towards offense. Less about the things that you didn't make and the, the, the things that not less about the things you didn't do and more about the things you did do for better or for worse when it came to scoring. Went head to head against Michael Jordan. There's a famous highlight where uh, I believe as a rookie he he crosses Michael Jordan and uh, makes makes his ankles break basically. Um, and that was the coming out party uh, for, for young Allen Iverson. Uh, he had a lot of rap culture, uh, you know, tattoos, you know, things that maybe you could call degenerate. Um, I don't think those things are necessarily degenerate in expression. I think more the behavior of, of like partying that was tied to it is more the degenerate thing. And, um, you know, the kind of behavior that I'm not in alignment with from Maradona or Rodman. Um, and again, I'm not putting these people on a pedestal. I'm simply like Bruce Lee does. He's taking what's beneficial and discarding the rest. We're taking the beneficial lessons here. We're discarding all the nonsense. And the nonsense, honestly, is the games we're talking about, the actual sports. These, these, these sports, we, we pay so much time, and I don't but anymore, but so much time and attention to just watching and glorifying it's a game with a ball. Um, There's a famous uh, quote I said earlier. We were sitting here talking about practice. Uh, Alan Iverson was to practice because a friend of his died, and um, a reporter asked him about it, and he just went off. He's like, we're sitting here talking about practice, about practice, not the game, not the game that I'd die for. Not the game that I uh, I play every time like it's my last. We're sitting here talking about practice. About practice is a famous, famous quote. It's hilarious. Um, the league tried to come down on him for the way he expressed himself, and he pushed back. And that that notion right there, that I can respect. Um, radical thinking in this day and age is labeled as something that needs to be fact-checked. A good friend of mine, Letters from the Ruins, uh, and I recently discussed If you have a thought, if you have something that's counter-cultural, not because you're trying to be counter-cultural, but that's just the way you express yourself without, within certain moral parameters, within certain, you know, religious parameters, um, this is, and again, this is the lesson in general. Press on. I'm expressing myself in a way a lot of the times that most people aren't going to get. And some people give me pushback about it and I say, you either get it or you don't. If you're going to check me on something moral, that's something different completely. If you're going to check me on something religious, that's something different completely. But in a way I express myself, it's not a detriment to others. It just makes you feel uncomfortable. I don't care. And neither should you.
Take these lessons, listeners. Ponder them. These are the only lessons about it's about sports ball I'm ever going to bring up. Maybe whenever not, I might bring up in a post or something. I don't know. But if it's something that's been marinating, uh, I've been marinating on for some time, and uh, I'm glad I finally did this, to be honest. Um, so I hope these serve you well. Until next time, good night and good storms. Thank you.